Hey, everybody, and welcome to Learning from Smart People. I am your host, Rob Oliver, and I have another smart person with me today. His name is Todd Randall. He is an eight-time CEO and a business coach from rural Florida with $6 million in yearly revenue and a passion for polo. He flies around the world to participate in polo matches, all while managing his businesses remotely. Todd, welcome to the podcast, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. Absolutely. So let's start here. Let's start with your backstory. Like, were, were you interested in polo like for a long time? Like, was talk to me about kind of how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, it's a little ostentatious uh, sometimes, but I think the story makes people wonder because you can't travel the world um, and travel to horse ranches in the middle of Africa um, and manage businesses for the most part. But I've been able to accomplish that just because of the way my businesses are run. So I started as a clinician, actually. I practiced pharmacy for a handful of years, but I always knew that I wanted to be a business person. That, that's what drove me. Um, and so I practiced. I did a handful of small businesses when I was in high school and college, and they were terrible. <laughs> I, I failed, you know. The best kind of consultant, like I, people say all the time, well, you know, you failed at a few businesses. Does that make you a better or worse coach? And I think infinitely better uh, because my job as a coach or a consultant is to help you avoid mistakes. Um, and no lessons are better learned than the ones you got bloody on, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I, um, I was in corporate America for quite a while, uh, 20, 20 years maybe, um, until I got, got the itches as many people do, you know, just to do my own thing. And um, I started with just the opportunity that was in front of me. I didn't, you know, I didn't have some great product idea. I wasn't given a boatload of money to go buy a business like some people are. Um, I just didn't have any genius idea. So I took the opportunities in front of me and I made the very most of it and then on to the next and on to the next. Next thing you know, I had, you know, six businesses running at the same time. Um, and I finally could take a chill pill um, and ask myself, you know, what have I been doing all this for? And that's, that's where the poll came up. It's like, always, always wanted to try it. Um, and here's my opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So let me just give you a sports analogy. And that is, I think about <laughs> like Wayne Gretzky as a coach and Michael Jordan as a GM, you know, they, they see the game in a, in a way they have an expertise, but mm -hmm. I, sometimes it feels like it's the, it's the, average players that make better coaches because they've had to they've had to learn like they've had to learn the game themselves they've had to understand like the, the game didn't come to them easy it was um it was something that they had to work at and something that they had to overcome and they had you know continually work on on a regular basis to improve their own game and and overcome that what does that what are your thoughts on that analogy yeah, I love it. In fact, I love the examples you gave too. By the way, I noticed you said Gretzky and not Messier. Is that going to make some of your city folk angry? <laughs> what? We'll, we'll leave that alone. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So you, the, you picked the perfect examples because Jordan and Gretzky, what do they have in common? They have in common a work ethic that is legendary. Like they are students of the game in the same way that Tiger Woods was a student of the game. If you talk to him at a post-event conference, He'll talk to you, wow, this reminds me of when Gary Player in 1976 had that such and such. Or Michael Jordan will say, you know, my biggest competitors are whoever, Larry Bird at the time or, or, or Magic Johnson. And here are the strengths of their game. And here's what I needed to bring in order to over, overcome those. Like they were real masters of the academic and masters of their, of their work ethic. And I think that's the reason that they became good coaches. 
Um, um, now, on the other hand, I would agree with you that sometimes the, the B players can become great coaches, better coaches, uh, because of this little known thing, which is um, job skill. And, and this flustered me uh, for my first couple jobs in corporate because I was the best salesperson on my team. And I kept getting overlooked by somebody else in corporate who would eventually become my manager. And, and I thought, well, geez, they're, they're not as good a salesperson as I am. How could they lead the team as well as I could? And then I finally got my shot and I started managing a team and I realized that these are different skills. Like to be, to be a great person is not the skill you need to manage an eight person sales team. It's, you know, some of the skills are useful insight for sure. Right. But you could have some insight and, you know, the manager skills and be a much better manager. Yeah. What, okay. And again, this is something that I've mentioned on the podcast more than once. And that is you know, in a sales organization, you have someone who is a fantastic salesperson and mm -hmm. the biggest mistake is to promote them to management because mm -hmm. management and people skills are not their skill. Their skill set is sales. And mm -hmm. sometimes they don't have the wherewithal to teach other people to, to do what they do or, you know, to communicate what they're doing. And, and in that way, and on another level, I think this relates to entrepreneurship in this manner where people don't go into, a lot of people don't become entrepreneurs because they are passionate about the business side of numbers and all of that stuff. They have a right. skill set or they've got something that, you know, they've got an idea and they want to run with that. But the business side is secondary. And in some ways, it sounds like your story is a little bit the opposite in which you kind of had the business acumen and you took advantage of the opportunity that was in front of you. So you you built it backwards from most people, how most people do. Does it, is that accurate? I say that is accurate. Um, and I think the lessons I learned at corporate were perfect for me to go back out into the field and be an entrepreneur again, because what I realized uh, relatively early is that most jobs require some skill. Um, and the reason I was actually the best salesperson on my team was not because I was a natural salesperson, but because I promised them that I could learn anything. And I was interesting enough that they gave me a shot. And then I, in the organization, I just went and I found the two or three best people at it. And I said, how are, how are you the best at it? And inevitably, you know, they would say, I don't know, I'm just natural and gifted, right? But if you studied them carefully, they did have habits that other people didn't that set them apart from the rest. And so, um, yeah, I, I think my, my career is, uh, is an, an interesting metaphor uh, for people who are wondering if they can be an entrepreneur, because I was not an entrepreneur. I just realized that entrepreneurship should have some skill base and I went out and practiced those skills until I became good enough at them to try and and the rest is history now what a great entrepreneur will tell you is that you're ready now to try but I wasn't interested in being that bloody okay because yep. it's a bloody game entrepreneurship there's a reason why people quote the statistic constantly 90% of businesses fail well there's a reason 90% of business fails because unprepared people you know have opportunities in front of them and they just can't say no they walk headlong into it without enough capital or experience or without enough you know help and they go down swinging and they'll tell you sometimes that it was fun right <laughs> but if you're going to succeed yeah i mean it takes prep sure okay i want to go back kind of and talk about something like you you talked about how 
you kind of happened into entrepreneurship where you, you found an opportunity that was in front of you. And, you, and then yeah. you talked about how you found yourself kind of with six businesses and kind of like, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go from here? Yeah. And, and you have kind of those experiences where you get somewhere and then you begin to ask yourself questions. And do you have, do you have help for, so that people don't have to like, they can start asking themselves the questions proactively without having to, to wait to get to those kind of intersections before they're making decisions about which direction they're headed. Does that make oh sense? God. I love coaching young people because the, the gap is so great. The, the, the choices are just so clean, right? Um, like I have, um, I, I was the first business. Let me tell you the first business I made. Cause I think there's a story in it, right? I, I was ready. I had money saved up and my 401k, I had built all this business, business acumen. Um, and I was ready to step out, but I didn't have a vehicle. You know, some people, they have this great idea and they're like, oh, great. And I'll stop and fund it myself and invent the Rubik's cube. I didn't have one. And so I kept talking to people who are business owners and saying, how did you start? How did you start? And I had all these big shot friends at the time because I was in big companies. Right. And they were like, well, you have to take all the opportunities in front of you and you have to evaluate them for their, you know, net operating income or their return on committed capital or their you have to establish a hurdle rate, Todd. Like, don't look at opportunities that you expect to return less than 15%. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what, what? I don't have opportunities, plural. I need one. I just need one. And I think there are a lot of people like me that don't have an opportunity. There's not a vehicle. And like my friend, uh, Tom, he's a CEO of a hotel chain. And uh, he bought and sold hotels for a living his whole life, right? So he worked for somebody and he did that. And he told me, it's easy. You just take, you know, all the hotels you want to buy and you put in front of you and you pick the best one. <laughs> Those are hundred million dollar investments. Who has that kind of capital? But it was his world. It's what it's the world he grew up in. And so that's, that was his opinion. And I didn't have opportunities. I had one, right? So I ran into a person who was an executive like myself at a big company. And all of a sudden, like he quit and he started showing up to the gym and in, in sandals and a tank top t-shirt every, every Tuesday. And I'm like, you're more relaxed than you were. He's like, oh yeah, I just started my own business and I want to know what it was. And it was a franchise. It was a business that someone else had started and gave him the rights to open up a location. Right. And he was miserably happy. He was miserably happy. And I said, well, franchise, isn't that easy or isn't that beneath you? He's like, what you mean, you know, building a location, negotiating with landlords, hiring staff, having people dependent upon you for their, for their food. Like what's, what's low about that? Like there's nothing nobler, right. Than running a business and making sure there's enough money in the bank account to, to make payroll. Like that's a noble pursuit. And it made me think about it differently. Okay. So um, then your first business, was it a, a franchise? Yeah, it was a, it was a spa called Massage Envy and there were a thousand already and they were going to build a thousand more. And, um, my investment criteria were, um, I was, I was willing to pass up on the premium return in, in order for high confidence. So I wanted high confidence, moderate return. And these, most of the massage enemies had not failed, but most of them had been successful. Um, and they returned a moderate income for the investment. And I was like, okay, great. That's what I'm looking for. That's the right investment for me because I'm less likely to lose. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty hard worker. And, um, and that was my start. 
And it seems like a non-sexy start for me, but it, it helped me realize all these really sexy, you know, results. So um, maybe, you know, your listeners could think about their first business a little differently. Okay. So what gave you the gumption to say, like, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go and be my own boss now. I'm ready to, to start my own journey because I, I think there's a lot of people out there who, you know, I have a, a wish kind of thing. Like I, man, I'd love to be my, like, I'd love to be an entrepreneur, yeah. but like I have a job right now that I'm not totally miserable in. I'm not real happy with it, but yeah. like I've got a 401k, I've got health insurance, I've got a guaranteed paycheck and like I go, I do my thing. And so I trade a, a, a known quantity of misery for a known quantity of paycheck. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to take that next step. Can you talk about that? Whew. I mean, I can feel that pain. It, it makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up um, just thinking about it because that is a, a very difficult decision to make. Let me, let me tell you a story about how I made it uh, in hopes that it make, keeps it practical for someone going through the same scenario. I was, um, I was around 40 when I started my first business. And again, I'd like to reiterate this. This is 10, 15 years after I had everything that it takes to try. I could have tried. I wanted to try with a moderate confidence, right? I wasn't in, I didn't have the risk tolerance that, that some entrepreneurs do. Um, I wanted it to succeed. And so I kept, you know, kind of accumulating experience, hoping that it would come to a point where I reach a threshold and I would suddenly become confident. And I wasn't, I wasn't becoming confident. So I went and got an MBA in my thirties and I thought that would do it. Right. And it wasn't enough for whatever reason. And, um, I had this assignment where I was working in Europe um, and it was a very high profile assignment. This is, I was working for a $200 billion company at the time. And this was an assignment reporting directly to the CEO. So I had, you know, all these kind of prestige meetings and appointments um, and I was living in a foreign land, right? So extremely satisfying job at this point. And um, at the end of uh, my position in Europe, they said, okay, Todd, great work, come home. Um, and I thought, Ooh, this has been such a big project. I'm not ready to come home yet. So I took three weeks off and I went to uh, Paris and just took language school in the morning and then went to the museums or went to the opera or golfed with friends in the afternoon. Um, and at the end of the three weeks, I had spent a total of like 2,500 bucks. <laughs> now, 2,500 bucks is nothing to sniff at, you know, for some folks. And I totally get that. At the time I was an extremely high income earner, Right. Um, and, uh, for me, the relative gap of spending $2,500 in more or less a month in a foreign country, doing whatever I wished, right. Was a revelation to me. That was a real wake up call that I'm like, okay, hold on a second. Let's multiply that by 12. That's like $50,000 a year. I knew that I could make $50,000 a year doing lots of jobs. Right. And I could be blissfully happy living in a foreign city, taking language you know, playing golf, whatever. And that's, that's what turned it for me. I'm like, okay, if life can be this good on less income, maybe income isn't everything. Mm. Maybe it isn't everything that I had built it up to be. Right. And that was a revelation for me. And so I thought, well, gosh, maybe there's a business I could open because I had saved up some money. Maybe there's a business that I could open that would, that would earn me $100,000 a year. 
um, which is twice what I need. So it gives me a little money to save and, and it gives me the freedom and flexibility that you assume comes with a small business. And that's when I started looking at open it up because when you start a business, you think to yourself, how can I make $10 million? How can I make $10 million? Tell me if this resonates with you. Open in a business. How do I make $10 million? That's where a lot of people start. And for me, um, there aren't that many businesses you can do that. Right. No, I understand. And I mean, my, my story was a little bit different in that, um, I started with, okay, how can I at least replicate where I am, where yeah. I am now? Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can, if my baseline is replicating what I'm doing now in the corporate world, mm-hmm. then, then I know that I can scale that to the next level where, but, uh, but no, I, I think that there's a lot of people who are starting with like, I want to start with a $10 million idea. How do I, how do I it's hit the ground there? It. Yeah, it's only worth it if I can become a billionaire. And I think that's a limiting belief. A lot of folks talk about mindset these days and how you know blocks and mindset can, can block you from taking the, the, the next inevitable step in your journey. And for me, that was the block, is that it needed to be a big enough project to, to defend leaving this great job. And in fact, I had it backwards. I was making much more income than I needed. I was making a lot more than fifty or hundred thousand dollars at the time, um, and I thought I needed it all. And when I had this revelation, it's like, well, I don't, I don't need all that. I could do with much less. Then the opportunity for business, instead of just looking for the ten million dollar business, I could look for a business that made all the way down to what my needs were, mm. with the same intent that you had. It's like, hey, if I can get started, if I know that I can make my minimum, you know, bills or whatever, then I'm sure I'll find some way to grow it. There have to be ways of scaling it, if nothing else, just duplicating and triplicating, you know, triplicating it. Um, and that that was the fundamental change in my mindset that, that helped me get started. Yeah. So can you talk about like a lot of times entrepreneurs have all right, work with me on this. OK, <laughs> they they have like beautiful thought processes. They don't have. They, when they start, they don't have the business side of it, but what I think that they a lot of times have a lot more business acumen than they, than they realize. Do do you agree with that? Fair, fair. Entrepreneurs tend to be a little idealistic um, when they, when they want to start. And entrepreneurship does require an awful lot of the operational details um, and you'll find that some people loathe entrepreneurship for one of those two reasons, right? That, gosh, you know, the spreadsheets are all perfect, but being an entrepreneur, you know, I have to adapt all the time and that's a pain in my butt. I don't like it. I don't like this new change stuff. Um, or, gosh, I had this perfect idea and uh, who has time to sit down and write down everything, right? Who has time to make a crazy spreadsheet? Who has time to, you know, count the checks that you've written at the end of the month? Shouldn't you just have enough money? (laughs) And I think that you have to combine those two or partner. I'm not a huge fan of partnerships. Um, I've had some partnerships that have, you know, thrived. Um, And the the problem is that the, the partnerships that don't thrive are such a burden from a time and investment standpoint, uh, mental anguish and everything else that I, you know, urge people to, 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 to find a business that you can do on your own just to keep it streamlined at first and then consider partnerships later. But yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things that you had shared with me in the, in the pre-interview is that the idea of somebody like a plumber, okay. Mm-hmm. Who is going to retire from, from being a plumber and, 
you know, they want to do something else, but they, they have a lifetime of experience oh, in, yeah. in the plumbing world. And I, I think you had shared with me some ideas about things that they can do um, mm-hmm. with that. Um, you know, they can start a, a coaching business for other plumbers or, you know, um, and you had, you had some other ideas in there. Can, can you talk about some of those concepts? Oh my gosh, so many. The, the vast majority of new companies um, are spinoffs of existing ones. That's, that's the most likely successful new startup. So if you think about it, uh, one of my friends um, was at a big printing company and they did printing for all kinds of stuff. Um, and there was one line that just wasn't keeping up with the rest. It was maybe a, an industry that was declining or whatever. And so as big companies do, they wanted to only invest in the fast growing past. So they were going to release this line. And my friend was looking at it saying, well, that line produces a lot of money, like to one person. Sure. Right to a big company, they might say, "Ah, three million dollars. That's it's hardly worth you know getting up in the morning because they have other opportunities." Like my friend Tom, who builds hotels, right? They had other opportunities that were such a better position for them to be in that for them, a business that only turns over three or five or ten million dollars a year is kind of peanuts. Why don't they just release it so they can spend resources on the other ones, right? And he and two of his friends at the company said, "We can, you know, we can like three million dollars. That's a lot of money to us, right?" Sure. And so they just went to their bosses and said, "Hey, this has been a successful business for twenty-three years. We realize you just like to stop it, but we talked to a banker and they would they would finance us." And they took it and they went out and they'd been printing that. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't a fast growth vehicle, but they found ways to make it happen. And so I think that when you're experienced you can see ways of starting with only moderate risk Hmm. right um so for let's go back to the plumber example right plumbers need to buy product from somewhere right they don't get it all at home depot they don't get it all at lowe's um, and discount is important to them because some of the margin they make is on the product so why don't you as a plumber um start um stocking the hard to get you know pieces of equipment and you go out and talk to your old friends you call up Jerry and say, hey, Jerry, I'm going to retire. But you know that copper plate that we have such a hard time getting? I got a truckload of it coming in next Thursday. Um, and I'm going to pr- price it reasonably so you don't have to search around for it. And now you've got a wholesale business. And it starts with a truckload of copper plate. And the next thing you know, you, you know, it's something else. Right. Right. So that's an example that non-plumbers wouldn't think of. Sure. And it would be harder for non-plumbers to execute because they don't have the relationships. Like one of the keys to that is being able to call up your friend, Jerry and say, this is Todd. Yeah. I, and uh, yeah. What, no, what I'm thinking is because of your, you know, in this example, because of the individual's experience in that plumbing world, they are more familiar with the pain points that mm-hmm. plumbers experience. Yeah. And then they're able to say, you know, if I can help solve some of those pain points for, you know, for folks in a way that works for me mm-hmm. now, now I've got a business that is, you know, that it, it's a guarantee in some ways, you know, it's moderate risk because it's solving mm-hmm. the problem that I experienced and it's solving a problem that every other plumber experiences and it's helping them get to where they need to be. Here's another plumbing example. So um, as a plumber, let's say I'm Todd the plumber and I do three jobs a week, right? Uh, 12 jobs a month, whatever. Um, And I'm always working because that's when I make income. I'm trading time for money, right? Um, And so when uh, a casino comes around and is going to build a 2 million square foot hotel slash exhibit center, 
Um, I don't go and bid on that. Why would I bid on that? It would take me literally three, 400 hours to do all the paperwork and the forms and blah, blah, blah. Plus my team's only, it's small, right? So let's say you're going to retire and um, you know that MGM's coming to town and building a big casino. So you go over and talk to him and say, hey, I've been a plumber for here for 23 years. You're going to need seven or eight teams. There's nobody in town big enough. You're either going to have to ship them all in from states all around um, or get them from Bechtel or someplace very, very expensive. Or I can put together five or six of the best teams in town. Um, I'll fill out all the paperwork and um, and you have local talent. They can come back and fix stuff when you need it. How about that? Now, all of a sudden, like, you're spending a lot of your time on paperwork and stuff. So you're not lifting a wrench anymore. It's better on your back. Um, and your relationships in town have another value. Yeah. And, and I mean, you're literally just looking at your business, looking at your experience, looking at your connections and seeing them in a way that's not, not just the typical, like, like, of course, these are my, these are my friends. These are my colleagues. Um, mm-hmm. But seeing that network for having a value that is that is greater than just colleagues and friends uh, which mm-hmm. and, and i guess it, that's got to be part of what you do as a business coach is helping people see their experience helping people see themselves in a way that um, that's different than how they how they would usually look at themselves is that kind of classifying what you do properly yeah i think so i think helping people find their authentic niches um is definitely part of what i what i do because um people do get sidetracked by trying just to play in the businesses where money is um and then sometimes in those cases they don't bring sufficient expertise to stand out um and so i think there is a brainstorming process that comes with getting a consultant or a coach that's on your side that can be brave with you and say things like yeah i, I appreciate that crypto is exciting but like why why would i trust you with crypto you're you're a retired plumber Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes, makes a lot of, it, you, you got to stay in your lane, but you also have to understand that there are a lot of on and off ramps, um, in, in your particular lane of experience, right? Is that. Yeah. Like, Hey, so if crypto is your thing, like if it's a hobby and you're really passionate about crypto, then why don't you take it a step further and say, look, there's a, there's a role for NFTs, you know, non-fungible tokens, in plumbing and I'm a plumbing expert and NFTs are a hobby for me. And maybe, maybe you're that person that puts those two things together. Right. Um, and you create some NFTs that are plumbing related that only people from the plumbing industry could possibly value or understand. And you're right at the center of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're creating the, you're the bridge between your hobby and your experience. And you're able to do something that um, utilizes your expertise that Mm -hmm. produces something of value and also um, is something that you're passionate about and that you find personally rewarding. Uh, yeah. yeah. So Todd, listen, if people want to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what's the, what's the best way to do that? Um, I, my coaching consulting um, team has a Facebook group, and I think that's the best way to interact with us. It's called Real Business Coaching. Our, our uh, consulting firm is called Beachview Coaching. So either of those places, Facebook is our favorite vehicle just because everybody can get on it. Everyone knows how. Um, and then, of course, we use other other platforms. But I think the right way to reach us is just Facebook.com forward slash real business coaching. All right. And I will make sure and put the link to that 
in the show cool. notes so that people can go in there. And I know that you've got a bunch of videos and different things that are all yeah. available within that group for folks. Hey, yeah. So listen, Todd Randall, thank you so much. Um, it is now time for three questions to establish your humanity. Are you ready for these, um, my friend? I hope I pass this test. All right. I'm, I'm game. Okay. Um, so what is the phone app that you most frequently use? <laughs> All right, I, let me just open. I'm going to open it and see what's first. Block Doku. Oh my gosh, a game. Seriously. There you go. I, you know what? You're in a judgment free zone. It's okay. <laughs> um, I'm not, there's nothing I'm going to say that, you know, either way. But the, the good news for you is that you are in a place where you can, you make the choices about what you choose to do with your time. And I am not going to judge you for that. It comes from a childhood anxiety of not being productive enough. And so when I'm working, if I have a minute, I'll turn it on and do it because I feel like I'm still being productive, even though it's just a game. Like I'm accumulating points, mom, mom. If she was still with us, she'd be so proud of me. Of course. So when you were a kid, did you eat the crust on your sandwiches or did you avoid the crust on your sandwiches? Oh, crust is the best part. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Nice. All right, so... Um, so you're down in Florida. Now, it, you're in rural Florida, so I'm assuming that you're not real close to the, uh, not real close to the coast. Uh, what is your, what's your opinion on, like, seafood? I, um, seafood, like, everybody comes down to Florida, and you need to get the crabs and the grouper and the, all of the, um, yeah. so is seafood overrated because there's other Florida, um, there's other Florida fare that you can get, or um, do, do you have, a, like, a go-to in the seafood world? That's a good. In Florida, I'm not sure. I've, I've only been here recently and I'm not sure that there's a specialty for Florida, but I'll tell you what I do because I have friends who are divers and in the sustainability um, world. And what they tell me is that some fish is at risk of being fished out. Okay. Um, and some fish is being replaced. Like if when you order salmon in a restaurant, it's very likely that it's actually not salmon, it's something else. It's a sea, or sea bass um, is, is even better example where you'll get snapper or something else that's the same color as sea bass, but because sea bass is so, um, you know, fished out. And so I always look on an app, the Monterey Aquarium, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has a fantastic app um, that you can just download from their museum. And it tells you, you know, green, yellow, red, which, which fish are, you know, kind of sustainably safe to eat. Um, And I use that tool more than local stuff because in Florida, they probably fly in just as much fish as they catch on the ocean. There you go. I, a valuable resource for all of us to make sure that what we are eating is sustainable and is good for our planet. Hey, listen, Todd Randall, thank you so much for being here. Uh, For all of my listeners, thank you for being a part of this. You guys are the reason why this podcast exists. And I will remind you all that when you stop learning, you stop living. Have a great day, everybody.